The Major Spoilers Podcast is sponsored by Urban Collector, your source for pop culture statues, busts, action figures, and replicas. Urban Collector is the exclusive distributor of the Battlestar Galactica Starbuck minibust. Visit them on the web at urban-collector.com. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. This time around, fire, bad, tree, pretty... Yeah, I, I got I got nothing. Podcast on the air and stuff and all that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to so, another exciting issue of the Major Spoilers Podcast. Matthew, you sound a little tired this week after that, that super lengthy that. intro last week. I've actually utilized all of the information located <laughs> in my cerebral cortex, and I have to wait until the, the hypothalamus refills. You know, that big... You know, until your brain refills, it needs a recharge. Yes, exactly. I, I think what I need to do is uh, major spoilers needs to pay for me for a ten week vacation in the Barbado Hamas. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you've got all the Luthor dollars you need, man. Yep. Yeah. The pro- problem is Luthor dollars don't spend. Now, if you have Shadow Thief dollars, those would be nice. <laughs> what we're talking about, uh, everybody, is last week's for our one hundredth episode that huge one hundred pop culture references. Uh, intro that Matthew made, and we actually have a contest. We want you to pick out as many as you can, put them in order. If you get all 100 of them, you're going to be thrown in the hat with the other entries that we're getting. We're giving away the Sandman Volume 2 Absolute Edition from DC Comics, as well as apparently uh, Rodrigo said we should sweeten the deal with a Season 5 of Smallville featuring Erica Durant's dancing around in a red, white, and blue bikini. Just like Durant Lois Lane always around, did. Just like Lois Lane always did. That's right, Rodrigo. Uh, all you have to do is listen to episode 100, just those first 10 minutes or so, and uh, write down all those references, where they come from, send them off to contest, contest, yes, contest, contest. at uh, com. You need to have all those in by June 8th, and uh, all things will be good. I think I'm actually going to have Matthew check through all these and see yeah. who's right I, and who's wrong. I will go through and I will, I will check them for validity, for correctness, and uh, then we'll have the swimsuit portion of the program. There you go. Hey, also, you guys may have noticed that uh, the Major Spoilers website was down for a couple of days over the past weekend, mainly because we're moving to a new dedicated server. For the longest time, we were on a shared server with a bunch of other websites, and, well, Major Spoilers just got so popular, it was causing problems on the server, causing some other websites to load slowly, causing our website to load slowly. Mm -hmm. So over the past weekend, we migrated to a brand new server. Things hopefully are running faster, smoother, more powerful. And uh, we want you to let us know if you see a big change or if you notice a change for the positive or negative in that direction. Well, I can tell you that our new server is actually powered by the Power Cosmic. It is, in fact, a silver server. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I got that going for me, which is nice. What do you want? I I, I used up all my good stuff last (laughs) week. Go back, listen to last week again. And then just transplant the Matthew portions of the program into this show. I, I don't like asking for money from listeners, but, you know, the moving to this dedicated server did increase our cost quite considerably to do mm. the, both the podcast, to run the website, those kinds of things. There are ways that you can help us out. Uh, Bruce Otter mentions that I, I need to push and plug our products a lot more, so you, too, can own one of these fantabulous 
F continuity t-shirts. You could also get yourself a Major Spoilers uh, mouse pad. Or if you have a little one who's getting into comics, you can get the Major Spoilers Kid Logo t-shirt mm-hmm. uh, as well. Those are over there in the Major Spoilers store. Or if you'd like to just make a donation, I think if every one of our listeners donated a buck, we'd be able to stay on and for we could feed month. We could feed Sally Struthers for up to one year. <laughs> so if you do that, uh, just take the time. Or if you can't, we understand it's a tough economy. We're going to muster on regardless because we've all got other jobs. Dun, 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 dun. Wait, sorry. <laughs> all right, so let's move on to some show content because we know how much people like to just sit around and listen about nothing. Uh, and podcasts so do we. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about news. We've got three items in the news category Ooh. this week. We've got uh, some brouhaha that's been stirred up over Captain America number 600 Bruh. and Reborn number one. Ha, ha, ha. We've got a bunch of movies uh, announcements that came out this past week. Or number three, we can talk about Archie getting married. Let's roll the, let's spin this wheel of morality. Spin the wheel of morality. (gasps) I think we broke it. And it landed on number two, all of them movies. All damn movies. It's kind of interesting because I really wanted to talk about Captain America 600 and Reborn number one, but maybe that's a topic for another show. I can bash G.I. Joe for a while. All right, so this week, a whole bunch of movie stuff popping up, all relating to pop culture. Uh, first of all, the Stretch Armstrong movie got a firm release date of April 15th, 2011. Mm-hmm. It's going to be uh, written by Steve Odekirk, who did Barnyard and Bruce oh. Almighty and Evan Almighty. Uh, there's the Heathcliff movie that's coming out. Mm-hmm. The A-Team movie got a firm release date. Uh, the Alien franchise is getting a prequel called Alien by Ridley Scott. Uh, Ridley Scott is also doing the A-Team movie. <laughs> well, Alien was the first one, and Aliens was the second one. Shouldn't this one just be called Alia? It, this one, no. <laughs> It'll be called Allie. The, yeah, <laughs> Allie. <laughs> it's got Allie Sheedy in it. Yeah. Uh, actually, that probably wouldn't be too bad for her to come back and do that movie. Uh, Tin Tin is going to be released worldwide before it uh, is released in the United States about a month later. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, everyone's up in arms about this new Sherlock Holmes movie mm-hmm. and the snippet that we've seen of G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe. Rodrigo, go ahead and let's uh, bash G.I. Joe for a few minutes. All right. So, G.I. Joe. I've never been a huge fan of G.I. Joe. And, Me and, neither. And, and, but there was something about it. If you if you look at if you picked up a GI Joe comic, it looks nothing like any other comic. It's got this look. It's got this style. Like the village people, sort of. Yeah, and you got the sailor um, with the parrot on his shoulder. And the guy with the... if you look at the movie, that is completely absent. Yeah. Um, the the, the snippet the, the I snippet we that say people the snippets that we've seen the, the snippets the stuff that we've seen and that's all we're going on. We don't we we haven't gotten an, an advanced uh, copy of the movie yet that you know of that you know of it's not in taiwanese at all anyway um the uh the, the stuff that we've seen with like the mecha suits and yes. the, the the climb like monkeys yes. like i can do you remember that story that kevin smith told about how he was trying to do superman but right. the uh right but produce, the, producer, the producer was like okay well i don't want the suit and, and i want him to fight a giant spider and, and then there's polar this bear. polar bear yeah. and brainiac fights the polar bear it it really feels like this is like okay well what do we have well we have our, our animators have just completed work on these crazy monkey suits and we also have like this cool fight scene where somebody gets shot through a uh, bus right. okay well what's coming up oh 
awesome gi joe that's shooting let's give them guns and have them do that like it really feels like they're just going from action scene to action scene it has nothing to do with gi joe mm-hmm. and despite the fact that it looks really cool right um it's it's not gi joe and and, and i think it's yep. gonna flop i mean from what i've seen it's... it looks awful i i hope it doesn't suck as much as the snippets but here there are two things that I'm going to say that you're first going to tell me are ridiculous, okay? Okay. Okay. Do we have to wait, or can we tell you individually <laughs> no, okay. that they're ridiculous? G.I. Joe was one of my first comic books. Oh, G. that's G. ridiculous. is a very good comic. Oh, that's, no, ridiculous. that's ridiculous. Secondly, oh, this oh, is very oh, important. Those are two things. If you read G.I. Joe from a certain perspective, it is a relatively realistic military tale. Except that's for the, the costumes and the... Now, hang on, stay with the... me here. Take a step back. Okay. G.I. Joe was mostly created by Larry Hama. Larry Hama is right. an actual veteran of the Vietnam War. He was actually in the Army. Right. Larry Hama strove for accuracy and detail. So, yes, Snake Eyes eventually became a ninja with a pet wolf. But if you read those first few issues, if you read the, the file cards that came with the, with the characters and their little action figures. Oh, yeah, yeah. Snake Eyes had a specific pay grade. He had a specific rank. He had a backstory that was based on a relatively straightforward military life with a little bit of, you know, showmanship here and there. Okay, so he wore a mask because he had a thing. Uh, Gung Ho, the Marine, wore a little leather vest and a little cap and maybe looked a little bit fey. But, you know, (laughs) they all wore basically variations on military uniforms or military uniforms tweaked for individuality. If you look at Bazooka... Bazooka wears basically an infantry outfit with uh, a jersey, a hockey right. jersey or something. Right. Well, and it's, it's that classic These are precept relatively, of, you know, if you're good are, enough at what you do, then yeah. you get allowances. So it makes sense that the most badass guys in their particular armed forces would be allowed to wear crazy crap like that. Right. right. They're, they're allowed to wear an open leather vest to show off their huge, you know, Marine Corps tattoo. But mm-hmm. the G.I. Joe characters were slightly larger than life, but they were not superheroes. They were not super heroic per se. They were real American heroes. True. Right. And if you read G.I. Joe, you know, there were things that were ridiculous. There were things that we, we put together Sepentor cloned from the bodies of 50 of history's greatest rulers. But it, Destro's medal aside, it's not silly. It's not campy. And yes, it's, it's a little larger than life and it's aimed at a younger audience. But the thing that I saw in that clip was not G.I. Joe. It didn't have any of the things that made G.I. Joe interesting. Well, well, it didn't have any of the Wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said that what made G.I. Joe great in those first Hama issues were the fact that these were all based on military. So if, if by that account, if we're looking and seeing what's going on in our current military, they are experimenting with these not true exosuits the way we see these Halo things that we see in this movie, but they are experimenting with technology to enhance the soldier's abilities. So it's probably yeah. not, you know, pushing it out. Maybe there's some wet works or something that's out there. Another five or ten years that having these full body suits that could scale up the side of a building like a monkey up a tree probably is not that too far out. And they're combating terrorism, which is very realistic today. No. no. Now, the only thing that would make it really, make this clip really fall off the face of the earth is every time they blew up a plane, a little parachute opened up and people <laughs> fell down to the ground. Oh, stop with the cartoon. The cartoon was aimed at five-year-olds. That, here's, here's that the clip other... was... Okay, I'm going to say it. That clip was 
superheroes done badly. G.I. Joe, while a comic book and while a little bit over the top, was never superheroes. This movie is not G.I. Joe. Rodrigo? Well, the other thing is, in the clip, is like you got a cool guy with shuriken, and he's just like shurikening the crap right, out right. of people, and you got the Baroness. Right. I'm guessing that's supposed to be yes, the Baroness. Yes, it is. That, that's the most obvious character I've seen so far as to the correlate to the books. Um, and what are they wearing? They're wearing cool outfits like the G.I. Joe people well, do. yeah, but they're not and military. Then, and then the G.I. Joe guys show up, and they look like the Power Rangers. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that struck me is like, why do the G.I. Joe guys need these super suits if the bad guys are just like running around kicking the crap out of people in high heels? Maybe we'll find out when we watch in the, the movie. movie. Are you going to go see G.I. Joe, Rodrigo? alternately. Um, if you make me, I Matthew, are you going to go see G.I. Joe? I will probably see G.I. Joe on Stars about six months after it comes out, after it tanks. Okay. What about this? Here's another thing. Oh, okay. Can we, I point one thing out? Sure. The two big characters that I keep seeing um, in all of the material going, reet, look at these big characters, reet, 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 are Snake Eyes and the Baroness. Yeah. Snake Eyes and the Baroness wear black leather tight outfits. Yeah. That's what people this are makes into. them stand out in the comics. Yeah. Now, if you look at all the promotional materials without the monkey suits, everybody in the, in the in the group <laughs> is wearing what? Black leather tight outfits. So they've taken the things that really make those two characters stand out. Yeah. And given it to everyone, making it not only silly but useless. All right. So uh, Stretch Armstrong, thoughts on that movie? <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for Joel and the bots to get to it. <laughs> Heathcliff. Wasn't there already? Oh, wait, no, that was Garfield. I, that's the problem that I have is Heathcliff and Garfield have been so associated with one another in that way. Yeah. Both are big, fat, orange cats. One of them's a street cat. One's, one's a little bit more pampered. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be the same movie as we've already seen. I'm is afraid it? it is. Well, I don't know. That's what I think everybody's what? going to think, which could be a good well. thing for the Heathcliff movie people because the Garfield movies did very well for the kids. So maybe all the kids will go, oh, hey, Garfield, and then go I, suck I them in to see the movie. I really hope that Heathcliff turns out to be like a scathing commentary on the uh, the homeless <laughs> in America. That would be cool. Also important to state for the record, damn you, Stephen Schleicher, for, for putting that thing up. It took me 15 years <laughs> to get the Heathcliff <laughs> theme song out of my head, and you put it back. Well, you know that that's got to be included in the movie somehow. Does it? I'm going to bet it? that somehow it is. Look, this is Hollywood is just taking all these things and, and revamping them and, and trying to shove in as many references to the original you know, source material in mm. there. So you know there's going to be somewhere that song either remade for the modern day in some rap version or some hip-hop version or some Miley Cyrus version. Miley Cyrus version. Yes. Can you imagine her was singing the Heathcliff movie? So they're just, it's going to be in there, Matthew. So now it's in your brain for another 15 years. Uh, thoughts on the A-Team movie? I pity them. I pity the fools. What about uh, all the brouhaha about this Sherlock Holmes movie where everyone's like going, it's not Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is not that way. Yeah. I, I w I'm actually I'm actually cool with it. Aside from that one scene where he like is taking a, a billy club and beating the crap out of a guy like a ninja. Oh yeah. Um. Other than that, like yeah, it's a little bit more actiony. It's mm -hmm. a little bit more like they've taken parts of 
like they've emphasized certain parts and de-emphasized certain parts. That's what you got to do in an adaptation. I don't have a problem with it. My 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 hope is, and I'd have to go back and watch the trailer to see where he was beating some guy up like a ninja. Mm-hmm. I guess that's my problem with a lot of these uh, modern movies that are set during a particular time period where there's fighting involved, where everybody already knows martial arts. No, they didn't. Yep. That would be my only concern. But everything else, I think it looks like a fun, interesting movie. I don't think you could get audiences to go and sit and watch two hours of Hound of the Baskervilles uh, done in the dry way the last time that that movie was made. Mm-hmm. 1963. Yeah. I don't know if I have a problem with this new version of Sherlock Holmes. You know, moving him to Jersey and making him a doctor and having him, you know, be on Vicodin really kind of takes away from the whole Sherlock Holmes over for me. I do like the way they they transformed Watson seamlessly into the oncologist. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah. Um, What about Tintin? Do you guys care about Tintin? Yeah, I'd be interested. They've been been talking about Tintin for a long time. Right. And I'm really curious as to how they're going to do it. I, I we, You know, it's going to be all 3D, motion-captured 3D. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found it interesting that the they decided to go ahead and release it worldwide before it released in the United States. Mm-hmm. But then when you think about it, it's not that big of a surprise because Tintin, uh, you ask a lot of people, they go, yeah. what's that? Is that you got a stuttering problem? Is there something wrong with your roof? Yeah. Uh, most That's not a dog. In, yeah. Most people in the U.S. are not going to know what Tintin is. But mm-hmm. you go outside the United States, even up into mm-hmm. our... Our friends uh, America's Hat up there in the north of Canada. Uh, Tintin, was, Canada. Who, Tintin was popular in it's Mexico, too. It's pronounced Canadia. Oh, okay, up in there in Canada. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was popular in Mexico? Mm-hmm. So, see, I think I think that's a right ploy to go ahead and do that. And for some American audiences to say, well, how dare you release an American movie overseas before it's released here? Think about your target audience. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it is because, honestly, all I know of Tintin is when I was a kid... I vaguely remember there being magazines at the barber shop where you could read about Tintin, and it was entertaining. But if you missed an issue, or if you missed, you know, an installment, it seemed like two months later you come back and we're in the same place. Right. Well, you know what? We will be taking a look at Tintin in the future. I just got the entire Tintin collection uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, from mm. my comic supplier. All these hardback, little bound volumes. Yeah. They look really good, so I'm going to start yeah. with, like, what is the first one, Tintin in Russia or something is the first one? It's really sad the way they all end when Eric Draven, you know, stabs him in the heart. <laughs> but other than that, I think Tintin, am, am I thinking of someone different? I, I think you Tintin. are, yes. All right, so plenty of movies A coming out. A whole group of jolly friends with jolly pirate nicknames. There are a whole bunch of other news stories. Up on the Majorspoilers.com website. We hope that you go out and visit it. We're hoping that you're telling all your friends and having them become part of the Major Spoilers experience as well. In fact, we've got a new person joining the Major Spoilers crew. He's written a couple of reviews for us. His name is Marlo Lewis. He's probably older than Matthew and I combined. That seems no. highly unlikely. That would make him 78 years old. Uh, though, you know, he I've seen his picture. He looks like he's 78 years old. Nothing oh, against him. Nothing against him, but he is old. He's been reading comics for over 40 years. We'll have a bio of him up on the website uh, later in the week, but we're glad to have him become part of the Major Spoilers team. Uh, Welcome to the team, Marlo Lewis, if that is your real name. Um, You know, if you want to, if you think that you could crack out a a couple of really good reviews or one good review a week, you might want to just give me an email. Drop me an email with a sample of your work. Uh, we can't pay you anything except for all the Luthor dollars that you can print off on your home printer. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to be a part of that and get some exposure and practice your writing skills and improve your writing skills and skills, skills with a Z, uh, then we would like you to, to be a part of that. So just let me know. Anything else, gentlemen? There are two rules to writing reviews. Which are? Rule one, don't be funnier than Matthew. <laughs> Rule two, it's easy to be funnier than Stephen. Oh, bite me. <laughs> hey. It depends I'm the funny on if you're one, going you're for the, the highbrow intellectual humor or if you're going or, for the dick and fart jokes of Matthew. Mm. I never make dick and <laughs> fart jokes, thank you very much. Except when he's reviewing dick and fart. I make jokes about an episode, of, you know, an episode of You Can't Do That on Television circa 1992. There you go. I think we should have a, a next week's poll should be Matthew versus Stephen, whose reviews reign supreme. Oh, well, Ready? just sheer volume alone, people would say mine, so. Sheer volume. Rodrigo, what are you reading there? All right, we got an email. Yes, that is. Gotta put it's an email. Email does not make a noise, Stephen. This one does because we had to print it out. <laughs> I'm I'm done taking the email out. Thanks, Stephen. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, this one came in seven envelopes. <laughs> Eight. <laughs> and it's folded up ten times. Anyway, hey, major spoilers, guys. I just went back and listened to the Cowboy Bebop sessions, and I was wondering if we, if we are ever going to see any more of these. You guys clued me in on a couple of things I've missed in the series, even though I've watched it three or four times already. Hope to see more sessions. John IG the second. All right. Well, uh, those were kind of experiments, those first couple that we did, and we thought we might have a series of those. Uh, but there didn't seem to be a lot of interest. We never had any feedback uh, from people, and there wasn't a thing that was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. I think we had one comment of... Somebody was playing, must have been playing their VHS copies because yeah. they're saying, oh, I these think, don't sync up. Yeah, I think I think the one comment we had is like, uh, these aren't syncing up. <laughs> and it's like, well, we're all playing them back from the same DVD player, so they can't go back at any any faster or slower speed. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we actually did record sessions three and four, but we had a recording error where Rodrigo's voice didn't get recorded. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's he an did important that on part. Purpose. Well, we know that that's an important part. So we just kind of... I think when did we do those? Like back in January, February, or yeah, something? that was a while ago. It was even a while longer than before Christmas. Yeah. Oh man, so we must have been really busy and yeah. things got out of control. But if listeners want to hear more of those, again, just drop us a line over at podcast at majorspoilers dot com. Uh, we've got you know this summer thing going on, and I'm at a at a at the doldrums of of the year for me, and so um, yeah, we might be able to resurrect those and bring some back if people are interested. Well, I think the problem is you didn't get to the point where Spike Siegel moved to Cleveland and met Joe Schuster and invented Superman. Well, there you go. <laughs> I think you might want to go back and re-listen to those first two sessions again, Matthew. Re is such a, a, a small word, and yet it implies so much. Oh, yeah, you have to listen to it for the first time. There you go. Yep. That's okay. That shows you how much Matthew cares about the site. It, it makes up. He doesn't things. listen to your thing. You don't read his thing. Oh, no, I actually do. I, 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 Matthew thinks I don't read his stuff. I give it a really good kind of glance over uh-huh. as I'm trying to move on to stuff. <laughs> and if he's got something I'm really interested in, then I'll sit down and read it. Like his Hero Histories, I do read most of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for, the, you know, like the block and the, because that's just all yeah. fanboy love anyway, once you get there. Bouncing boy. Um. You'd be the one who can tell us about man boy. I mean, uh, oh, you said uh, fan. Uh, Never. All right. Emails Hello. are out of the way. Why don't we talk about reviews? Now, I tasked Rodrigo with a new book. Do you even remember who this is Who this is from? This is from... Uh, 
Do you have that paper uh, that came with it? Yes. Probably says right inside there. I feel bad about this because they sent this a couple weeks ago, and I gave it to Rodrigo uh, about our show 100, and he's been reading it. Dear Stephen Schleicher, you're hereby summoned to appear. Oh, oh no. wait, no, wrong letter. All right, this, it's from Eureka Productions. Ah, Eureka Productions, there you go. Science fiction classics. Science! Now, what are science fiction classics, Rodrigo? Science fiction classics is a comic. It's a trade paperback. It's like an um, anthology that they... That, it's, it's an anthology. It, it contains several... You know, science fiction classics. It has a. Uh, this one has <laughs> War of the Worlds. Hence the um, name. It, the year twenty eight eighty nine by uh, Jules Verne. Martian Odyssey by Stanley Weinbaum. Um, the Disintegration Machine by Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh-huh. So it it has um a lot of very cool. Um, science fiction from around the Victorian era and, 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 and even later, and actually even earlier than that, because the very first thing that it has is um, something by Hans Christian Andersen called In a Thousand Years, and um, all these predictions that Hans Christian Andersen made. And it's funny because um, he missed, he kind of got a lot of them wrong by by about 800 years. Oh, really? They came like, sooner than... Yeah, they came 800 years sooner than he thought. Wow. So that's I mean, it's just that standpoint, just kind of sitting here and looking at what they thought the future was going to be like. Yeah. But you've is, got War of the Worlds. I mean, that's a incredible. classic story yes. right there. And this is based on the book, not the movie. This based is on all... based on the on the H. G. Wells book, it's actually H. G. Wells is credited as the writer. Oh, yeah, cool. On on the on on this story, um, and so it's just a bunch of different it, artists taking a crack at yeah. this stuff. There's a lot of there's a lot of text boxes, so you're essentially following H. G. Wells's actual narration of the story along with the pictures, in most of the time, and it really gives you a sense of. Um, what the what what reading the story is like plus you get the uh the the interpretation of the artist who is da, 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 Micah Ferador and and it's good i mean it's it, it's you know the 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 tripods and war of the worlds attack with this heat ray and just the the illustrations of people just being incinerated um it 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 contrasts really cool. in a in a really cool way um the other one, the one after, right after it, the Jules Verne in the year twenty eight eighty nine, um, chronicles the story of the owner of the world of the Earth Chronicle, the biggest newspaper in the world in the year twenty eight eighty nine. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and it's just it's a it's a day in the life, and it's just weird as all get out. Um, it basically kind of weirdly predicts the internet. And that is like people will not read newspapers; they will have the news spoken to them through this magic tube, and you know things like oh, yeah. that. So that could be either the radio, the radio, or, or the, the internet. internet, or you know the series of tubes of the. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, and this is like volume like thirteen, seventeen, something like is that. This is volume seventeen, okay. but it's there. It's it's the graphic classics volume seventeen. Um, the previous ones are kind of um one through sixteen. Yes, one through sixteen, <laughs> but they're not all science fiction. They oh, have okay. like Robert Lewis and Stevenson. they didn't put them out in order. They went one five seven. Oh Henry, three. fantasy classics. Oh cool. Oscar Wilde, Gothic classics. Oscar um, Wilde's Gothic classics. No, no. Oscar Wilde, comma, Gothic classics. Semicolon. Raphael Sabatini. Oh, so there's so it just spans a bunch of different. 
different genres and different yeah. writers and creators and yeah cool. uh, every every few years it seems that some uh comic book publisher gets the bright idea to go back and 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 reprint you know the stuff from alexander dumas yeah and and, and things like that um I believe and, it's actually pronounced dumbass. Yes. Yes. I was waiting for um, Matthew to pull out the dick and fart joke. So there you go. <laughs> By the you way, dick, out, and, dick and fart number six was, was a, a big turning point for the, for the story. I, I highly recommend that you guys read it. But <laughs> the, um, a lot of the time it feels kind of disingenuous. It kind of feels like they're, like like some of these companies are just like okay, well here's some culture right. to to pass off you know our our uh, superhero blowjob comics adventures. exactly. Hmm. Um, this doesn't feel that way. This was very. It just feels like it was very lovingly put together. The uh, the the second one, the uh, twenty eight eighty nine one, is drawn in the style of the Jetsons. Oh yeah, it, it's just incredible. I mean, it's such a good idea. Um, I don't know. It it just feels like they sat down, they mapped out all these stories, they found the perfect artist for them, and like you know, it it just really great, and I liked it. <laughs> um, so I would, I would, I'm gonna give this one five whole slices of meatloaf. Wow. I've only, I I have two stories left to read. The machine stops because this and is a, this is a big collection. This isn't is. your 22 page. Right, let's hit the highlights. The Bureau d'Echange de Mont by Lord Dussany. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to reading the last two stories. But yeah, I mean it's fantastic. Excellent. Excellent, excellent. And I think that one what's the release date on that? Look on that sheet. Uh I think there's a release date on that. I think this is actually an early an early release that Let's you're reviewing. See. Close the same Fusion Classics and the Old Remember, folks, we prepared farm. last week, so this <laughs> week we won't have to. That's gonna happen. Man, I was so wiped out this week trying to get oh, this I show know. together. Somebody <laughs> actually <laughs> said to me, Hey, what's this like? And I'm like, It's like a thing and a shut up. I can't. <laughs> oh, it doesn't have a date on there. I'd, I'd have to go I, into I my email. I've it. got it somewhere. I'm pretty sure that oh, this wait. one. Published. Wait. <laughs> Currently in production. Nope, he's talking about a different one. Oh, okay. Sometime in the future. Yeah, it may be out now or it may be out in the f- near future, but check it out. It's science fiction class graphic classics. Science fiction graphic illustrated classics there you time. Go. All right. Well, I am also kind of diving into classic type stuff, but not science fiction classics like from the Victorian era. I'm going. Uh, back I was into... hoping we'd get a science fiction double feature. Oh well, this kind of is show. because uh, I'm going to go back and take a look at Star Trek. Ah, <laughs> oh, nice from the 1960s Star Trek. Actually, so is this a retro review? This is not a retro review. This is actually, you know, IDW uh, has a new series that's <clears> out, a whole new series of Star Trek comics. They had a Star Trek uh, prequel leading up to the new Star Trek movie. They have a new uh, Star Trek Spock series that is following, I guess, uh, the Spock. moments leading up to the movie uh, <laughs> and how he got you know, all involved with Romulus and everything. Uh, but then they also have had some other ones called, uh, what was that Gary Seven episode, Matthew, from Star Trek? Assignment, Assignment Earth. Earth. They had like a six-issue miniseries uh, called Assignment Earth that featured Gary Seven. Uh, they have Star Trek, what is it, Aliens? is another one that takes a look at the various races. Hmm. And then they've got this uh, six-issue miniseries called Star Trek Crew, written and illustrated by John Byrne, uh, that follows the early adventures of, like, Commander Pike before he became a captain and all this stuff. 
and some of the people involved with that. Uh, I just barely had a chance to read issue three, and they sent me issues one and two, which I haven't dived into, so I'm kind of reading these backwards to see what this is all leading up to. Uh, but I today I'm reviewing Star Trek crew number four, and it follows uh, this lieutenant who's getting back on the Enterprise again for the first time. She was part of the Shakedown crew for the original uh, Shakedown mission that they had. She's joined by Pike who is not the captain yet. There's a different captain of the Enterprise. And I'm sure... Robert April. And I'm sure that there are a lot of Star Trek people like Matthew who know that answer, but but I don't. So I find that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they do is they encounter some major uh, tractor beam or some major uh, transporter beam uh, that shakes the ship, and they follow the beam's path, and they, f- they s- discover this planet... <coughs> that is inhabited with all this vegetation and it's kind of an idyllic world and they send a landing party down and of course somebody dies right away just like in a classic Star Trek series. Uh, But they find that the planet is inhabited by Earth beings, Earthlings, Mm -hmm. uh, who all look alike uh, but who have no modern weapons. They're all dealing with like sticks and stones and they're riding dinosaur kind of creatures, bird creatures and this kind of stuff and they're split up into five tribes and the lieutenant, she gets captured, and we find out that th- their backstory in that uh, this crew has only been, uh, apparently these people have only been on the Earth for, or on this planet, for thousands of years. And so they're living thousands of years. And it's uh, we find out that they were all beamed to this planet back in the 1960s by Gary Seven. Uh and it turns out that these were all part of this early eugenics wars experiments. These were all clones. Mm-hmm. And they were programmed. They were bred to fight. And so they get to this planet where they can't do anything. So they decide to separate into five different tribes and fight each other. Mm-hmm. And continue to fight each other forever. And because they don't die and they have... Well, I shouldn't say they don't die. Because they have heightened uh, uh, senses and their metabolism helps them repair their bodies fast. They essentially will never die. And so they're going to be trapped in this forever. And so it's a really kind of a fascinating story to see uh, this con kind of stuff slip into the story. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, uh, Gary Seven apparently was the one that convinced Khan to get on that ship and get drift, uh, you know, sent off to space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't remember, Matthew, maybe you do. Do you ever remember a series of clones that were all made that Gary Seven zapped into space? Oh. Gary Seven actually only appeared once. Well, in the in Star Trek series. Now, he was also in two Star Trek novels, and he was also in a in, in this Assignment Earth uh, comic book series, but I didn't know how well you followed everything Star Trek or not. That's why I asked well, if, you, I, if you knew anything about I don't about believe that. that he has had any canonical appearances other than Assignment Earth. Star Trek novels, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of Star Trek novels. Right. There's no way to make them all canonical, so I have not read about okay. Carrie Seven. Well, I did ask IDW about this Assignment Earth series and if it was integral in understanding the story, and I was told that uh, it's kind of an enhancement to the story, but it really doesn't really play a part into this mm-hmm. particular issue. Uh, you know, I thought that John Byrne... He just basically hit the major plot points. Here's where we need to be at these times. And the thing that I find fascinating about some of these Star Trek issues that IDW publishes that are set during the 1960s or before television show during that time period is they all kind of play out like the television play. You can almost see when a commercial break uh-huh. would occur in these bits. Dun, dun, dun. And and so Byrne does that very well. Now, I don't know how you guys... Uh, 
feel about John Byrne's art? How do you feel about it, Matthew? I like Byrne's work. I find that lately he's been inking himself with what looks like maybe a Sharpie or something oh, yeah. that equivocates a Sharpie. Mm -hmm. So his inking style has actually gotten a little more angular and a little less super polished, but I like Burns' work. I, yeah. I liked it recently on uh, FX from IDW. I, I like his work, too, uh, although I find that over time, it's kind of like Kirby. All the characters tend to look alike mm -hmm. a little bit, and that's kind of what happens here is Pike looks a lot like the other commander, or the mm -hmm. other captain, and the girl looks like another girl, except the hair is different. And was this the was this ensign that died? Was she the same one that beamed down or uh, arrived on the ship with her and those kinds of things? That's the only problem I have with Burns' work. But you know, as far as the story goes, I'm really interested now in seeing what happens in in uh, issues five and six that wrap up this series to see if somehow this Gary Seven storyline, especially with how it ends with um, with the lieutenant talking about uh, Roberta Lincoln and how she disappeared. Uh, in the 19s, or uh, when she was 99 years old, I want to see if somehow they bring her into the series or not. So I liked it. It's a pre-Pike story that I like, and I'm going to give it four slices of meatloaf. Nice. Do you think that um, Gary Seven is the next iteration of our Attorney General, <laughs> Steve Six? <laughs> oh, Rodrigo. I, I just thought, like, the first time I heard about that guy, I was like, what? <laughs> Our attorney general is a robot. That's awesome. Johnny Five. Yep. Steve Six. Steve Six and Gary, Gary Seven. seven. Yes. There you go. Matthew. And don't forget Romy Eight. There you mm. go. Matthew, enlighten us with some uh, hedonistic tales of hero superheroes. Well, I don't know if I have any tales of superheroes this week. All I've got is The Boys Presents Herogasm Number One from Dynamite Press. And the cover is disturbing as all get out. That's all I'm going to say about it. Um, Herogasm is basically, um, uh, it's actually a kind of a clever plot point. Essentially, every summer there's a huge giant cluster schmas crossover and, and all the heroes are involved and they all go off into space or to some secret hidden planet and, and everybody in the world knows that, that their lives are in stake and then two weeks later the heroes all come back. Well, it turns out it's all staged. Yeah. And, nice. and the heroes are actually going to a hotel in Reno to bang each other's brains out. So I kind of like that. Um, <laughs> we actually start with the Homelander, the Superman analog, explaining how horrible, horrible it's all going to be and how they're going to be fighting for their very lives. And, of course, gathers all the superhumans, takes them with him. Including some and super they, villains. And some villains, because this is the thing. Superpowers are controlled by Vote American in this reality. Mm -hmm. And so you figure if the villains have them, most likely the villains have them for a reason, to give the hero something to fight against. Right. But about halfway through the story, we find all of the heroes at this you know pool party, essentially, running around naked and doing whatever you expect them to do. And it's, it's kind of graphic. Oh, yeah, it is. And it's a little disturbing. Yeah, it is. And... Um, <laughs> We get to the point where Starlight of the Seven, who is actually Wee Huey's girlfriend, and that's going to that's gonna make for some great comedy somewhere down the line. And But uh, I guess maybe for people who aren't reading the series, and we've talked about the boys before, but we didn't lead up to their romance. They don't know each other's jobs, right? Wee right. Huey doesn't she know thinks that she's, she's an insurance hero. investigator, and he thinks she's a dental assistant, I believe. Yes, awesome. 
But she's a, one of the premier superheroes in the world, and he's trying to kill all superheroes. Um, the majority of this book is full of sequences with characters having sex, drinking, doing inappropriate things, and oh my god, is it disturbing. I mean, seriously such. I don't have a problem with sex as a concept. I don't have a problem with pornography, as anyone who's ever seen my hard drive will tell you. <laughs> it's not so much that this is, is you know pornographic or inappropriate or blah, blah, blah. It's that it's so without restraint. I guess the whole thing is all the heroes and the villains just do whatever they want. And mm -hmm. the telling scene comes when the Homelander, the Superman analog, ends up in a hotel room with Soldier Boy, who's kind of a Captain America type. And the implication, well, it's not even an implication, the inference that we're supposed to make is that Soldier Boy has been trying to get into the big leagues, into the seven for years, and he can't pass his quote-unquote entrance exam. Mm. And passing the entrance exam apparently means having sex with Superman, uh, the Homelander, forgive yeah. me. And there's this <laughs> whole sequence where the Homelander is just sitting there and, you know, the character Soldier Boy walks away all depressed and dejected that he didn't make the big leagues again. And you see the Homelander get this, this smile on his face, this evil smile. And the most disturbing scene in the book, he leans back and he's like, I could do anything. Yeah. And you realize that, I mean, these characters, they are not heroes. Mm -hmm. They are self-serving schmucks. And, of course, we find out that this whole thing is being watched by Wee Huey and Butcher and the, the five characters who are the boys of the title. And, of course, we come to the end and we see, you know, the big cliffhanger is somebody is showing up to this hedonistic thing and the boys are here to take him down. And I believe it's actually the vice, vice president. president. I'd have to yeah. go back and do my math. This is drawn by a different artist than the regular book. Um, uh, what's his name? Derek Robertson draws the boys. This is drawn by John McRae, who actually drew the really phenomenal Hitman comic for DC. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Written actually by uh, Ennis, the same man who's writing this. Yeah. Um, overall, Herogasm feels like an issue of the boys, which is understandable. But it feels like an issue of the boys. I, I guess the problem I have is that Ennis has been selling the boys as a book that's going to out-preacher preacher. And his dis definition of that is, we're going to shock you and shock you and shock you. Nasty and grosser try than and preacher. You, yeah. We're going to try and give you a good story. But the, whole, the main point is going to be getting to the end of the issue and going, oh, my God, I can't believe they did that. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's an enjoyable experience, don't get me wrong, I'm not shooting it down. The problem I have is that when we get to this issue, when the sex is so blatantly on panel, it's almost too much. There comes a point, and, and I want you to know that I realize this is probably heresy, <laughs> there comes a point when even you know pornography or, or booze is too much, and this mm -hmm. issue feels like a little too much. It feels like it tips the scales of the boys too clearly against the superhumans i mean there's there's a lot of gray morality in the story mm -hmm. in the boys and in their universe there's a lot of shades of well butcher is an evil 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 some bitch but he seems to be mostly on the side of the angels and he's fighting against people who need to be fought against mm -hmm. this makes the heroes the heroes the characters so unlikable and so obnoxious and so hateful that you're just kind of 
I guess it's one of those things that someone had mentioned on the forums that the characters are very unlikable, and they're so unlikable that he's never been able to sit down and read an issue. Right. And that, you know, that problem comes in here in that even the characters that we, you know, have a feeling for, Starlight, and the characters, you know, the boys, aren't good people. They aren't nice people. And this issue is very much a, oh, I can't believe they did that. Yeah. It was, you know, you know I so- read that too, uh, like a week ago, last week or a week ago, whenever it came out. And I had to feel the same way. It's just like how much further over the top you can go. But if you think right. about these things that go on in, uh, where is it, the Bahamas or Jamaica or wherever, where they're talking about hedonism, uh, right. 09 or whatever, and they just, anything goes, this mm. is a pretty good portrayal of anything mm-hmm. goes at, at these kind of events. And wow. uh, if, if yeah. you're one of those people that want to see boobies and wieners and people getting it on and dildos and, and uh, cocaine everywhere, then, you know, this is a book that's going to have it in there, but... I kind of agree with you, Matthew. You, you know, too much is sometimes too much. Well, I think that as a five-issue series, we're probably going to see something going on that establishes this and then moves forward. Right. So I don't think we're going to see five issues of the of the, the boobies and the wieners and the hoagies and the grinders and the navy beans, navy beans, navy beans. But I think there's going to come a point where Either it's going to turn and give us something that's that's story related and you know spiral back into the main title, or it's just going to stand as a you know here's an issue we did that was really shocking and it had you know horrifying gross things and had the thing having sex with four women on panel. Yeah. I mean, not the thing. Someone who looks remarkably like <laughs> the thing who is gray. We'll call him the thong, or the thong perhaps. I don't know. Overall, it's not a bad book. It's well drawn. It's well written. It's, you know, John McRae's art is different from Derek Robertson's, so it's not the same experience. It's still a good book. It's still an above average reading experience for anyone over 18 who's not easily shocked or from the Bible Belt. So I'd have <laughs> I'd have to go with three slices of of meatloaf, but I might want to put a prophylactic on that meatloaf <laughs> to make sure that there wasn't anything around the meatloaf that might have been unsavory if you're picking up what I'm putting down. And you could um, squirt a little cheese on that. Ah. So. Oh! <laughs> Stephen Francis Schleicher. <laughs> you are fired. Uh. I alt. That's not... That is not kosher. That is not kosher. Wow, no, that, not, not that, regard, to... <laughs> that, that remark was so bad you just turned Matthew Jewish. <laughs> All right, everybody. Plenty more reviews up on the Major Spoilers website. Head on over there and uh, reviews from everyone, including Marlo Lewis, if that is his (laughs) real name, Mark Wade. Uh, So you wish. (laughs) Oh, you know what that means, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, what what does that mean? Done. The meatloaf has been distributed. Rodrigo has said ah five times, and and I liked it once. Stephen has made no fewer than four disgusting remarks, and that means for the first time in over two weeks, it's time for the millions in attendance, or at least the four of us, and the 77 people watching at home, the major spoilers poll of the week, 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 of the week, week, yo. week, 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 week of the week, yo, with Matthew's dog.
Yes, time for another episode of the Poll of the Week. You know, there are a lot of comics being released each week, but for some reason I, I just thought that perhaps this week might be a, a banner week for a couple of different reasons. This week we see the release of Batman and Robin number one. We see the quote-unquote end of Ultimate Spider-Man in issue number 133. Air <laughs> We get to see more superhero turning bad in Irredeemable number three, a gruesome tale from Image Comics in the form of Chew number one, and the antics of Atomic Robo taking on the horror from beyond space and time. Need to say that clearly the horror. The horror. Horror. The horror from beyond space and time. So the poll of this week, I thought, what are people really most interested in this week? Or in other words, man, I'm so burnt out from last week, I couldn't think of anything oh, else. No, but, God. but you know, how many a... more robots are going to fight each other? R2-D2 could so not defeat Soundwave. So What's wrong with what you? Of these titles, or I've got also other, if there was another title that you find more interesting than all of these, what do you find is the most interesting title, the title that you're most looking forward to this week, Rodrigo? I'd probably go with Atomic Robo. I think um, it's... Uh, I'm 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 real curious as to where this next uh, jump in time that 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 has been yeah. teased is gonna go. Okay, I will give you this. Uh oh, it still takes place ten minutes after the last issue. Okay, okay, and then it jumps, and then well, we don't know. We'll have to find uh, out in issue okay. three. Uh, but uh, I think last time you said it was a little wordy. The first issue mm-hmm. was really. This one is not. This one has a lot of okay short words, but lots of action. So I think awesome. you will enjoy it. <laughs> Short words, but lots of action. That's Steven right there in a nutshell. My attention span is not that great. Matthew, what are you most looking forward to this week? Um, Honestly, I put other because Sea Guy, the Slaves of Mickey Eye number three is coming out. Ah, what makes that so great? Oh, it's Grant Morrison and he's gone BF crazy. Sea Guy is like the best series ever because it makes sense, but only within its own internal logic. And unlike Final Crisis, it's not trying to smear its internal logic all over the walls of the DC universe and turn mm. Batman into a cave painter. Ah. But uh, I actually did choose of the titles listed, Irredeemable number three, because I loves me some Mark Wade, and issue two was pretty fascinating. Issue three gets really, we find a little bit about uh, Pluto? Plutonian's uh, kinky side. Plutonian. And he's a little, he's a little off the deep end. Plutonian, Plutonian, <laughs> you border on the Adriatic. Okay, so this was kind of a tough choice for me because, you know, I do loves me some Atomic Robo, and I do love Irredeemable number three, hence the two early reviews that you saw up on the Major Spoilers website. Chew sounds interesting because it's this guy who solves crimes by eating evidence <laughs> from the crime scene, mm-hmm. often dead people. Nice. So that sounds kind of interesting. I oh, really gross. I really have enjoyed every single issue of Ultimate Spider-Man. And this is the, again, air quote, final issue of Ultimate Spider-Man. <laughs> where we find out if Peter Parker dies or not. So that's really interesting. But the one that might shock a lot of people is that I'm most looking forward to. I'm like almost giddy with anticipation. I'm most looking forward to Grant Morrison's Batman and Robin number one. <gasps> And I know that may Yay. shock a lot of people because of my hatred for what Grant Morrison did during Final Crisis and what mm-hmm. he did during the previous Batman series. Now, let me preface this. This is why I'm excited. 
I think we've said before, Matthew, and, and, and some other readers have said, Grant Morrison does really well with, like, Animal Man, and he does really well with, like, what you said with the sea guy, with his own properties that he can do whatever he wants and plays in his own playground and can do whatever he wants, mm-hmm. and it turns out into something fantastic. I'm excited to see what he's going to do with Batman and Robin, number one, because this is not Bruce Wayne Batman, okay, number one, which means he can go crazy, okay? He said that this is going to be kind of more like the the campy 60 shows, mm-hmm. and that's fine because that's totally in character for who uh, Dick Grayson is. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, spoiler warning, Dick Grayson is, <gasps> is the new Batman, right? Can we just say that the spoiler warning is implicit oh, yeah, whenever yeah. you come in? <laughs> we are major spoilers. So, I mean, I think people it's are not gonna... like we're the Fluffy Bunny podcast here. In, unless... Because those guys are so wordy. Unless Grant Morrison just totally takes another massive dump all over the Batman property, I don't think I'm not going to not like this. Well, not going to not like it? I don't think I'm not going to not like this. He doesn't think he's not going I to think not I'm, like it. I think I'm That's going to. That's a double to. negative, which means you think you're going to like I it. I think I might enjoy it. Amazing. Wait, don't think you're not going to not like it is a triple negative, <laughs> which means you think you're not going to... I Wait. don't know. I, that's why I, this is my most eagerly anticipated issue of the week. All these others. Did you say meagerly? No, eagerly. eagerly. These are the ones, the, all these others I know I was going to like. You say orphan as really? in a boy who has no mother or father, or Batman orphan as in frequently. Is, the, Batman is the one that I is really that mystery. It's the mystery box. It's what is this going to do? Is Grant Morrison going to get his, Is he going to get his capital letters back? Could be. So well, you are you're not alone in that, Steve. It looks like as of my latest voting, fifty percent of our public is voting Batman and Robin as their most looked forward to book. Uh, Spider-Man, a distant second with yeah. 19%. Strangely enough, Other came in third at 13% of the vote. Yep. And, you know, I wonder if the people who are voting for Batman and Robin number one are voting because it's Grant Morrison and they slavishly follow everything that Grant Morrison does. No, they're voting for Batman. A, or if they're voting for Batman or if they're voting they're DC voting versus Marvel or what. So They're voting for Batman. This is what people do. I know Batman. I vote for him. Now, <laughs> granted, I, I'm not meaning to demean or in any way, you know, uh, malign the intellect of our faithful spoilerites. But I, I swear to you, people are voting for Batman because Batman is the title that has the whitest. I let, let's say the whitest uh, over accessibility Spider-Man? over Spider-Man. Over Spider-Man. Over Ultimate Because, first Spider-Man. of all, it's not Spider-Man, Stephen. It's Ultimate Spider-Man. Well, that's Spider-Man. what I think about Batman and Robin. I think this is Ultimate Batman and Robin. And so Grant but, Morrison, to, in my in my mind, because this is not Bruce Wayne Batman, because Bruce Wayne Batman will be back in eight months, Grant Morrison has free reign to do whatever he wants, and no matter what he does, it's not going to affect Bruce Wayne Batman. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm looking forward to it. No. Now, what do you think about Frank mm-hmm. Quietly's artwork? That I'm not looking forward to. Oh, so much. I love Frank Quietly's work. Quietly does such a a great job humanizing his characters. He doesn't do you know slabs of granite right. like a, a Norm Brayfogle, and he doesn't do even like Amanda Connor. If you look at oh, Amanda yeah. Connor's art, her characters are all very very beautiful, right. even when they're ugly. Right. Quietly is quietly, quietly, not quietly, quietly. 
Frank Quitely's art manages to make everybody look like a person to where even if you're Batman, you might look weird or dumpy or strange or have bad skin from a certain angle. Quitely's work is – I don't know if you've ever read Flex Mentallo. Yeah, I've seen some issues of that or some, some – Flex Mentallo has never that. been collected because of some issues, I believe, with the Charles Atlas Foundation. Yeah. But Flex Mentallo is gorgeous to look at. Yeah. And Quitely does such wonderful things. His characters are – they're 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 expressive. They're alive. They're they're sexual. They're they're cool looking characters. If I ever actually had something that somebody was going to draw, I think Quitely would be in my top five easy. I, I just I didn't like what he did in in All Star Superman. Did he used to draw X Men? Are you kidding? That was the best Superman since Mort Weisinger died. Yeah, I just I wasn't a I wasn't a fan of it. For I I can't tell you why. I just didn't I. I didn't care for it. It wasn't my kind of art. I mean, I appreciate it for what it is, but it's not my kind of art. So again, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing if he's doing more of the same in Batman and Robin or if he's if he's tweaking it just a bit. Well, you hate change. No, if no, I really don't. If he's who I think he is, because I don't remember. I think he drew, um, he was the first artist on New X-Men, wasn't he? Yeah, he was one of the first artists. Yeah. Yeah, I was. He I, did the whole arc with Quentin, Quentin Choir flipping out. Mm-hmm. Did you like that? I did. I did. Okay. I do like his art. A lot of people complain about it because his art is kind of unglamorous. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the biggest that's draw for maybe it. Maybe that's what I don't like about it. Is that's, that's not the glamorous. Point. They look like what it would look like if a guy went and had somebody make him a cape and ran around in the streets with a 10-year-old kid beside him. <laughs> they look like they look like it's not photorealism. Right. Yeah. It's, but it has an internal realism. It has a consistency. Maybe it falls into that weird uncanny valley for me. It, it might because I, I think that it's actually kind of ugly and that's kind of what I like about yeah. it. I mean, he yeah. doesn't he doesn't draw terribly attractive characters and right. that's cool. Yeah. It's it's like Umberto Ramos. There's mm. a specific there's a, almost an idiom, a, a, a specific tone that he evokes with his art that mm-hmm. is part of the process. And you're supposed to look at these people and go, why does he look so weird? And him looking a little weird, even if him is Batman, is part of the whole thing. It's part of the of the, the Frank Quitely experience, yeah. if you will. Cool. Great band, by well, the way. We'll find out what everybody thinks of some of these comics as the week rolls on, depending on when you're listening to the episode. Uh, but if you want to cast your vote about oh, the one that you're people. most looking forward to, head over to the Majorspoilers.com website. So issue 100 has come and gone, and we're into issue 101, and we've already had people saying, when are you going to have Dr. P- Peter Coogan back on the show? We want to hear more Dr. Peter Coogan. And then this past week we ran this uh, story about the, the Magneto uh, Testament trade paperback that they have included a bunch of teacher's notes so that if teachers want to use this in the classroom, uh, they can do so. And somebody shouted, hey, it'd be really cool to have Dr. Peter Coogan back on the show to talk about why this would be a cool comic book to have in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And we said, calm down, Mrs. Coogan, but it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> so guess what? Please welcome back to the show, Dr. Peter Coogan, longtime friend of the show. Dr. Coogan, welcome back. Hi, Stephen, Matthew, and Rodrigo. I'm glad to be back. So the semester, the school year has wound down for you. Yep. And you are into the summer. Are you doing anything special over the summer besides uh, the San Diego Comic-Con? I'm doing that. Actually, I'm getting flown down to uh, North Carolina to talk about tools. <laughs> You're going to talk about Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, it's a marketing company. Oh, cool. They want me to talk to them about uh, superheroes and uh, 
So we're going to talk about you know Batman and and tool usage and so forth. It's oh, it's actually sounds, for a tool company. That so. actually sounds very it's awesome. Cool. Well, the yeah. the reason why we brought you on the show today is to talk about the use of comic books in the classroom. Now, you and I both teach comic book classes. I teach a class about uh, turning comic books to film, and you teach a, co- a couple of comic uh, comic book related classes as well. So we're really not talking about that kind of comic book use in the classroom. We're talking about using comic books to teach students about anything and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are comic books out there that talk about science. Uh, there are com- Science! You know, there's a, a graphic novel series put out uh, by some manga company that talks about, the, uh, that talks about <laughs> statistics and nice. economics. And it's all done in a manga style. And, of course, they Super have... Super happy gravity fun time. Statistics champion Utaro. <laughs> well, it's kind of that way. I've seen yeah. a few pages of that. And then they've also <laughs> got those uh, comic books that are put out by the... Uh, uh, but, but by the public relations people, the uh, MIAA and the MPAA about why pirating comics are bad. Mm. Pythagoras, I choose you. But why do we, why do, why use comic books in the classroom? Well, there's a number of reasons to use comics. I mean, first of all, why use anything, right? So uh, you use comics because they, they're they're good at certain doing certain things, just like you use film and you use novels and you use nonfiction and you use textbooks. So, one of the things oh, that we have Dr. to oh, what one of the things that we have to cost you a quarter, <laughs> yeah, is that you know comics are just like anything else; they're a normal medium, right? Um, and they haven't been for a long time. This this uh, you this wouldn't have been a question. Why use a novel in the class? Except it, you know, that was a question 200 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, even a hundred years ago, really. Um, you know, why use a modern language? Like why use to teach something in English? Ugh, why use an American novel? So, but comics specifically, uh, have a certain ease of entry. They, they have a kind of low entry point. Now that's not to say comics aren't difficult. I taught dark Knight, and I had students who couldn't read it. They couldn't follow from one panel to the next. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand that Bruce Wayne was Batman. Uh, it was, you know, sort of mind-boggling. But still, they couldn't read it. They just couldn't read the pages. So, but most comics are not that level of technical sophistication. So, comics have a kind of lower uh, um, barrier to entry when you're reading, and and that's good. But comics also, you know, a la Scott McCloud and Will Eisner. Uh, because they're combinations of words and pictures, uh, they can be more accessible, but they can also communicate things in a different way. Uh, Will Eisner found when he uh, did comics books in, for the Army uh, that they were the best medium for teaching soldiers how to clean their guns, how to load a truck, mm. how to do all mm-hmm. these tasks that they had to do. Um, and he discovered that on his own and fought for it and uh, fought the Army for it. And it, it and it worked for a long time. They had him do comics, and someone came in and said, no, no, no more of this. But so comics are especially effective medium to teach. Now, that's sort of nonfiction comics. And, and when you get into uh, narrative, um, you know, the, the best way to learn something is really through story. That's a great initial way to learn something. Right. Uh, um, and, you know, we're, that's what makes us human, right? Animals don't tell stories. Humans tell stories. So... Anytime you're going to learn about something, if you can learn about it through a story, I learned, for instance, about I can name all the Roman emperors from Augustus to uh, uh, Nero. Why? I, Claudius. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And now when I learn anything else about the Roman Empire, 
um, you know, about the Vespasian emperors and so forth. I know I have a grip on it because I'm good from really Julius to uh, to Claudius, right? Mm-hmm. Or Julius to Nero. Mm-hmm. I'm good on that because I have a narrative frame to put it in. Now, of course, that story wasn't true. It was a story. Uh, the depictions were inaccurate. But once you get a basic familiarity, learning theory is that it's easier to add knowledge onto something you already know mm-hmm. than to give you completely new knowledge. So you use a comic book like Magneto Testament as a way to get into discussion of World War II and the Holocaust, just like you'd use um, Schindler's List. Right. So th- those are sort of the main reasons why you use comics to teach. But I guess, I, I guess the biggest problem, and again, this is more. Uh, me coming from a parent side, not from somebody that reads comic books. My kid comes home with uh, Last of the Mohicans from Classics Illustrated and is sitting there reading that. And I'm the parent that doesn't understand comic books. And I say, put down those dang comic books and get in there and do your homework. But, Dad, I'm doing my homework. I know this is comic books. This is silly stuff. This is stuff for little kids. Put it down. Put it away. How do we beat- you grow up in 1954, apparently. <laughs> well, but how, how, do you, how do you beat, and this is open for anybody, maybe even Matthew, how do you combat that, that stigmatism of comics as the lowest common denominator in learning? Well, first of all, a stigmatism is actually a problem with the eye. Right. Well, I, I think, I think a stigma. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Stephen was making a double point that we are so nearsighted. There you go. Right, right, right. And also we occasionally bleed from the hands. Oh, <laughs> forgive me. That's a stigmata. Um, I, I really think that – and this is as an adult who grew up dealing with some of that stigma. I really feel like the stigma attached to comics is less that they're childish or that they're stupid. It's right now that they're all escapist superhero stuff. right. So, I mean, it's still there, but I don't think that the whole comics as kids stuff is quite as much of a force as it would need to be. I think the problem that I would have is growing up reading Classics Illustrated and the actual novels is that, don't get me wrong, Gilberton did some great work. And some of those Classics Illustrated are beautiful stories, but they're wrong. They had to chop thousands of pages or hundreds of pages <laughs> into a 50-page a comic book, and they chose scenes that I didn't feel were, you know, the most important. So let's say, you know, the example that I have is The Three Musketeers. I read The Three Musketeers as a novel, and I didn't like it, but I read The Three Musketeers as a comic book from Classics Illustrated, and I liked it. Says Rodrigo. But (laughs) it's also a shortened and simplified tale with a lot of the subtext and a lot of the important bits cut out. So I feel like comics are just a medium. They're neither rare nor well done. But the the, the whole question of, you know, why comics, why would you teach with comics is really one of how, how do you teach with comics? What can, like Dr. Coogan said, what can a comic do that another form of book or another form of instruction can't? Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I have a, I have a direct uh, response to a couple of things. W- one, the, the main, I think Matthew is completely correct that the stigma is, is not there uh, as much anymore. Um, if a teacher were to face that stigma, first of all, when something is assigned, you know, it's, it's approved by a school district, usually that has to go through a whole process but um in an instance when maybe it's not uh 
Scott McCloud's understanding comics. Mm-hmm. If the, if the te- if the teacher can talk to the parent and show them McCloud, that helps a lot. Um, secondly, in terms of like a classics illustrated, the same thing is true for about movies. And you know, one of the things that I always recommend is watch the movie first, then read the book. Why? Well, the movie's an adaptation. It's a distortion. We talked about this in our adaptation in the adaptation show right, we did. Right. It, it's a reading tool. There's actually a, an article that I read about it, and it talked about readers in high school. And what the, they did at the school was to have them watch the movie first and have them read the book. And their reading scores improved. Why? Because they didn't have to deal with the surface level of who are these characters, what's going on, and... As Rodrigo pointed out, it's an adaptation. I'm sorry, as Matthew pointed out, it's an adaptation, and so it's different, and it's less, and it's shorter, and so forth. But what that does is that means that when there's a change in the book, when the book's different from the comic book, the reader is much more aware of that difference and becomes more interested. Say, wait, wait, what is this? And suddenly pays more attention. Mm-hmm. Right. And so though that shortening, the adaptation, the abridgment of it actually – and the changes – actually help a reader. Now, specifically with comics, uh, there is a, a, a comic book adaptation of all the Shakespeare. It's out there, and it's being used in high schools uh, and, and junior high schools to teach. And that what they're discovering is that they have, they have like three different versions of it. They have uh, a modern language version of it. They have uh, a reduced um, classic the Shakespearean language version of it, and they have a full-length, scene-by-scene, shot-by-shot, big old honking, you know, phone book version wow. of each of the plays. And what they find is that students tend to start with the uh, the shortened modern language version, move on to the shortened Elizabethan language version, and then onto the full length one. Mm -hmm. And after a little while, they start to ask just, they start to ask for the full one to begin with. And it increases there because it's in a, because they can see, you ever try to read, I've taken a Shakespeare class. You ever try to read Shakespeare? Yes. Just as Shakespeare? Yes. It's difficult. It it puts you, it's difficult. It puts you sleep because you can't, you have a hard time picturing it. If you read it after you've seen the movie, you have an easier time picturing it. And if you get to the plays after reading the comic book, you have an even easier time. It's just a pre-reading technique. It makes things more accessible. It makes things more understandable. Well, so I, that's why. I wonder, though, uh, how many educators actually do that. How many of them actually say, okay, uh, this week class, we're going to take a look at, I don't know, pick it. I, I'm going to pick on Last of the Mohicans because that's the uh, Classics Illustrated image cover that always pops to my head. Mm-hmm. And I want you guys to read this. This uh, classics illustrated. It's a comic book. Here's how comic book comic books work. Now let's read the the novel. How how many educators do that, or do most of them kind of just fall back on? Well, here's the comic book. This has the the key points. Let's move on. I think like in everything, you have pioneers. There's people out there who are like, how can I get this knowledge into this child's skull? Right. Oh, I know. I'll try a comic book. Hey, the comic book worked. Hey, everybody, the comic books work. Okay, we'll follow along. We'll do comics. You know, you, you get that. You get a lot of that. Yeah. Well, and there's also I, the I, question of, 
Is there anything wrong with just using, you know, that comic book adaptation of Last of the Mohicans? Because all that I know about Last of the Mohicans is that Daniel Day-Lewis movie <laughs> that was basically an action film. Yeah, yeah. I've never, I've never read a Last of the Mohicans in any other sort of thing. And all I know about it is Natty Bumpo and Uncas. That's what I know about Last of the Mohicans. So if I read that comic book when I was 10, 12, 6, 54, however old I am, if, you, if I read that comic book and I had a basic knowledge of what some would say may be you know, a fundament of, of, of literary learning, would I, you know, would I have a different feel about it? Would it be something that I'd be more likely to seek out on my own? Mm-hmm. Or you know, is, it, is, it that, is that enough of an inroad if you give them the comic and the ones who want to know more about it will be able to know more about it, but the ones who are like, eh, whatever, Natty Bumpo and Uncas can then move on? Well, I think there's two sort of, of things going on here. One is a cultural literacy argument, mm-hmm. Edie Hirsch argues that there's certain things that educated people should know. And if we call Last of the Mohicans fundamental American literature, then people should know something about it. Well, the comic book suffices for that, to know something about it. Um, if we're talking again, we've, I've already talked about the whole uh, uh, going through the uh, getting into it and getting easier with it. But um, And I've read I've read all the Leatherstocking Tales, and I'll tell you, the best way to enjoy Last of the Mohicans is read all the other ones first, because if you read Last of the Mohicans first, it's pretty slow. If you read Last of the Mohicans last, it's fast. Compared <laughs> <laughs> to Deerslayer or, or The Prairie, oh my God, or, or uh, uh, it just zips by. It is an action novel. Nice. Um, uh, but, you know... What I've seen from uh, from papers at the Comic Starts Conference, we always have papers, uh, and panels by by educators, uh, people talking about how they use comics. Typically, the way people use comics is not adaptations of literature, but they use comics by themselves. And they have students read comics and they have students make comics. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I've heard from them is comics are reading. And students don't read but they read comics right you can often get them to read comics and and at that level comics are very good as a way to get students who aren't interested in reading interested in reading and so because they have that lower barrier to entry uh, they can follow the pictures they can pick up the words they're still reading words and pictures they're still reading words and words and words so they're used a great deal more in that fashion uh, to uh, to encourage reading, to get students started on reading. And then they can get interested in a topic, and then they can go off and, and also read books. Well, I, right. I have heard uh, sometimes well-known people who were not great in school say that the only way that they got through school, through an English class or a literature class, was through a comic book adaptation of the story. Because they're not a great reader, but they can follow along with the pictures. Mm-hmm. And so I can see some legitimacy in that. But what then, or what is a benefit? And again, I'm just asking these questions. What is the benefit of a Classics Illustrated or any of these other adaptation books compared to a Cliff Notes version of the, of the, uh, of the book? I can, I can start this one if I may. Sure. Um, and I, uh, now my brain has completely psyched on it. Great Expectations. 
the story of Pip and his adventures on the moors and meeting all of the crazy, crazy people. Here's the thing about Great Expectations. I had a very specific path. I read that book in an uh, accelerated English class when I was maybe nine. And I had enough of an understanding to put it in context. And it was very complex and bizarre and annoying. But it got to a point where it occurred to me, I have no idea what a moor is. And I never could figure it out. So the first portion of it, I, you know, when they're talking about the descriptions of what happens to Pip on the moors, I got nothing. I'm from central Kansas. I wouldn't know a moor from a 64 Plymouth. So when I read the comic adaptation, which I believe actually was a Classics Illustrated book, it gave me a perspective. It gave me a visual of a portion of the story that never really stuck with me because I had no frame of reference. I, I mean, I, 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 I found that, and I, I really think that, I disconnected from that early portion of the story because I had no way, I, there was no way for me to, I, I guess, assess or approach the material. There was no way for me to relate to it. At the point where we have the crazy old lady in the house running her own little fiefdom, hey, that's my childhood. I'm on board. Mm. But before that, there, you know, it, it's a question of relatability. I'm given a visual depiction of these things that happen. So, you know, in a way, it's kind of like some would argue that television takes away our, our ability to visualize things in our head or to, you know, think for ourselves, whatever. But it also... The comics, not television, but to a lesser degree television, the comics give us a frame of reference for things that we may not otherwise understand True. or be able to process. And, and I would agree with you there because I guess the first <clears throat> comment that I would hear from someone in, in our English department at the college would say, yeah, but you're losing so much when you take this and, and put it into the comic book form. All these great descriptions and mm -hmm. and uh, how so-and-so used these words to weave a big tapestry. Well, that's what the images are for. That's why we have well, the pictures in the book to, like you said, set the location, set the scene, set the time period, set the clothing, those kinds of things. And there's also the argument that says, you know, a lot of times when I was in school, and this is you know, not really the argument because that implies that somebody other than Matthew ever thought this. When I was in school, I read a lot of things because it was an assignment. I went through it and I, you know, I memorized the salient points and then I went home and I watched Doctor Who and Danger Mouse. When it comes to, you know, a, say a comic adaptation, it may lead a portion of these people into actually going and reading more, reading like like Dr. Coogan said, reading the actual source material and having basically that DVD extra moment where something you don't remember from the version of it that you know pops up and you're like, "Wow, this is interesting. Now I'm going to really really you know, tie into this. So if, let's say, the dry recitation, and I shouldn't use the word dry, but just, you know, the actual tome itself sitting on your desk maybe gets 10, 15% of the class really into it, you have to wonder if maybe that comic adaptation might bring a larger percentage in and bring some of those people who would be more likely to not immediately engage to it to a point where they would be interested in going to read that original source material. It's funny that you mentioned Doctor Who, because wasn't the first season of Doctor Who essentially, let's go back and, and review some history lessons? There was a lot of historical to it. There was, you know, it was originally pitched as partly as a historical series, an educational series. Yeah. That's interesting that you, that you mentioned that. So... Go ahead, Doctor Coogan. Can I touch on the uh, the whole uh, Cliff's Notes thing? <laughs> yeah, 
the the difference between a classics illustrator and close notes is that a classics illustrator it's an adaptation it's a retelling and uh we talked about that during the the adaptation show right. about the different values of that and and the changes and so forth uh Cl- Cliff's notes is an interpretation close notes yes it reduces the story but it also tells you what it means mm-hmm. so you're reading an interpretation of it and that's different from reading an adaptation of it because an interpretation tells you what it means an adaptation just tells you another version of the story so you you get to interpret it for yourself so th- that's a significant difference um you know the 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 cliffs notes sort of pre-choose it for you the classics illustrated you still have to you you're encountering the language usually oftentimes you're encountering actual language from the book selected but you know not all of it but it's still t- the ones especially the new ones the gilbertons they changed a fair amount but the new uh, classics illustrated there's a good amount of the material in there um and and you're still left with basically the story, some version of the story. So you still have to figure out the themes, the characters, what the setting means, how the how the uh, how the action, how the plot works out, the ideas. I mean, you still have to work all that stuff out for yourself. You can talk about all of it, um, but you know, again, I would re- I would recommend with any uh, difficult novel, any significant any novel that's going to take that stands up to multiple readings, it's going to stand up to a pre-reading, whether it's a movie or whether it's the graphic novel version of it. It's going to stand mm-hmm. up to it, and it's going to be rewarding. Uh, that's, I think that's a good way to teach. Uh, it's, no, it could be any reader, but especially a struggling reader would benefit from that because it makes it more possible. Mm-hmm. It makes it more possible for them to understand right. the novel. Then it's right. to the good. Do you think, and again, up for grabs for anybody, maybe you kind of already answered this before. Is it just okay to read the the comic book adaptations of of these uh, stories, and just say, "There you go. Now I've I've read the Three Musketeers, and I understand it because I read it in in this comic book." Well, no. Just like it's not, you know, okay to. Ju- it depends on the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if it's just to get cultural literacy familiarity with it, yeah. You know, but if it's to understand what the novel is about, then you're not understanding the novel. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Would would it be okay to just, uh, you know, uh, for the Three Musketeers, just watch the the uh, uh, you know the movie from 1973? No, or the, or the candy bar cartoon, <laughs> or the candy bar cartoon. Exactly. You know, <laughs> no, um, but as a as a t- uh, you know, unless what you're doing is you're teaching a comics class. If you're teaching right. a comics class, then it's perfectly okay just to read the comic. But you know, you wouldn't. In, for instance, you you would you wouldn't in a movie class read the novelization, right? Right. That's not the movie. Right. But you might read if it's a difficult if it's a difficult movie, and there's a novelization of it. Somebody might read the novelization of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean. Is there a novelization of Eraserhead? I bet I could have done a much better job of understanding <laughs> that movie if I had read the novelization. Right. Well, you know, you make a good point uh, in there because I remember watching Raiders of the Lost Ark and then a couple of years later reading the novelization of that, and I felt that the book was much more rich in all of the extra stuff that was thrown in so you had a better appreciation of the story. Now, what about the... Um, 
Now, we've been really talking about adaptations of of classics into comic book form, but the whole kind of conversation got started with this Magneto Testament story about his time, Eric's time in concentration camps during World War II. Mm-hmm. And people are saying, hey, this would be a great way to introduce people to the subject of what happened to the Jewish people during uh, World War II, during the Nazi occupation. What about what about things like that, Rodrigo? Did you ever read Mouse? Did you ever read that? I I didn't. I haven't read it. I, I, I tried to start reading it, but I think... I was too young and I wasn't properly motivated for it, mm-hmm. um, and it just seemed too dark. And I was like, ah, "I'm gonna try to find something that's a little lighter." Uh, but as far as Ooh, I go, X Men number twelve, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I remember reading Mouse when I was like in sixth or seventh grade, <clears throat> and thinking it was really, really kind of interesting how the writer was trying to tell a story that didn't, you know, that portrayed people in the different animal forms, mm-hmm. but then also did it in a way to where it engaged the reader but didn't turn off the reader and made me want to learn more about what had happened, which probably then, Dr. Coogan, would be like a gateway into reading um, The Diary of Anne Frank or something. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say that uh, what's the typical way that he, that the Holocaust is taught in, you know, in high school? It, Anne Frank, right? Right. And Anne Frank, you know, it's it's... It's a great work of literature, but it's not the only thing. It's like it's like Catcher in the Rye is often put forward as this sort of you know novel of teenage alienation. It's not anymore. It's so far away. And, you know, it's not for a fifteen-year-old today. Catcher in the Rye. You know, they they, <clears throat> they might as well be reading that Last of the Mohicans. It's not realistic anymore. So the same thing is true. You know, at Magneto Testament is going to be real to students in a way that maybe the diary of Anne Frank isn't quite as real because of the distance in time. Um, you know, one of the things is I remember finding out from people that they didn't know there were concentration camps in America for Japanese. Right. 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 Well, that's because they didn't read the invaders. Right. I read or the, the all-star squadron. I read all-star, all-star squadron. squadron. And you know, Roy Thomas had uh, this uh, Japanese-American uh, superheroine. I think it was Golden Girl. Gwenny Lou uh, Sabuki, the Golden Girl. Yes, sir. There you go. And, you know, I read that when I was, I don't know, 11, 12 years old, something like that. So, like, I knew there were these internment camps in America. And, you know, it was just part of the story. Yes, Roy Thomas was trying to be a little didactic, but he was also using it for dramatic and, uh, you know, uh, narrative, it was a good story, right? So yep. that's the other thing about it is that, is that anything, any story where you're engaged, you can work in, especially historical fiction, you can work in a lot of details from the history that people learn in a way that makes sense for them, in a way that's, that is current. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why things like Catcher in the Rye doesn't work for many people, but there are coming-of-age novels that are current that work for people much better. So, and I think if comics are one one way to do that, comics are just one way to do that. I, I like how you I, talked about Will Eisner and and trying to teach you know the army how to how to clean their guns and do other things and and, and that. But do we get to a point where they use comics as a 
I don't know. Comics are a tool, obviously, to a educate. Crutch. Not a crutch. More as propaganda. I, I you mm. know, ter- like I'm talking about these uh, MPAA and the MIAA and the RIAA. Uh, um, not the MIAA. That's a basketball. But the RIAA. Um, you know, pushing MPAA. putting these, these comics out there uh, to to say, oh, you know, you're evil if you if you uh, if you're downloading music or you're downloading movies or these kinds well, of things. I, I think that the important thing. To note about that is, and it's it's been brought up before, is that comic books are a medium. Probably million, you know, thousands of people each day read at least one comic, and that everybody who freaking gets on an airplane at least glances at the little thing that tells you what to do in an emergency, and that's a little comic yeah, book, right? You know, well, and you, you, you have that, a- all that stuff going on. There's no. There's nothing saying that comic books, like comic books, are completely neutral, just like books are. There are books that are horrible propaganda. There are comics, just like chick tracts, that are horrible, horrible propaganda. You want to there follow up on that? There is a Matthew? grand comic book tradition of horrible, hateful propaganda. And if you've ever been in a bus stop restroom anywhere in the Midwest, you know what Rodrigo is talking about. The existence of the chick tract, or to a lesser degree, the Spire Christian comics, where Archie learned a moral lesson, or uh, Treasure Chest. I uh, I grew up occasionally running into an issue of Treasure Chest, which was, I believe, specifically in like Catholic parochial schools, something like that. But there are books, comic books, comic stories that are out there to teach a specific perspective, to try and maybe even convert people to a perspective, or you know, give that heavy-duty indoctrination. It's not necessarily an issue with the comics itself, saying, you know, that for whatever reason, the MPAA using their comic to tell you how evil you are, Stephen, because you looked at Wolverine before it was ready. You are the devil. I feel so dirty. Yeah, but really, it's, it's the spiritual equivalent of a new... More of a of a news a twenty first century chick tract, and right. it's kind of getting getting away from the point. But where you have teaching, anywhere you have teaching, and any tool you can use for teaching can just as easily be turned to demagoguery. Well, and I guess that's the problem that I have is that a lot of these comics that I'm talking about are being pushed into the classroom and saying, "Hey, please give these to your kids, and you guys can use this to talk about uh, why." You know, downloading music is bad. Well, who's to say that downloading music is bad? And there I don't. And I think, well, I, I think there may be some teachers, and I, maybe this is my problem with the education system, is that some people just say, "Okay, I've got these comic books. Now let's talk about why music is bad." And the kids are taught to not question the teacher. To where one kid in the back who really wants to ask that question, "Why is this bad?" Uh, is afraid to do so, and so it doesn't create that open dialogue. And so I think that sometimes these these kinds of things uh, can be kind of bad. Holy yeah, I don't crap! Think that really has did you to open do with a comics, comic? Though. I know, I know. It doesn't. I mean, <laughs> that's that's like fifteen different arguments all rolled up into one, sir. I know, but it just seems that, <laughs> and I guess it is maybe as Rodrigo said, a crutch. Where, and it goes back to the question that I said earlier that there may be educators who are just saying, "Hey, here's a classic illustrated, or here's this." Uh, Here's a Magneto Testament that has all these teacher's notes in the back. Let me just preach from this material, and let's not open up a discussion. Let's not go right. a step further and, and go, what happened next? What what were the bigger implications? Why can't we let these things happen again? Or, you know, to go into those 
meanings behind things. And and I think that's what happens with some of these uh, propaganda comics that are wrapped up in a way of education. This is meant to teach. This is supposed to learn from, but it, it has an ulterior motive. To try and bring your lunatic ramblings back no, into not what lunatic we're actually ramblings. talking <laughs> to, to try and bring it back, I think the, you, you do raise a good point in that I, as a father, would be extremely bothered if the only thing that my daughter knew about the Holocaust was, hey, wasn't Magneto in that issue where that happened? Right, right, right. So that, I mean, that to me would be an issue. I think that you've opened like 53 different cans of worms to where there's a lot going on in that argument. But the basic point that I think you're trying to get around to is, as a tool, what do comics represent? And I don't, I, I don't think that, you know, again, it's a, it's, it's a matter of perspective and what you're trying to say with it. If all you know is the comics and you know them because they're comics or because they're easier to read, then yes, that might be a problem. But if you're using them as, you know, as, as Ruben said in Road Trip, you have to have a way to, to step up to the material. Right. That was, that was my annotation because well, uh, Dr. Coogan always makes sure to do his annotations and <laughs> – I, I never do. As long as people are using comic books as that gateway into a greater discussion or that gateway into the original source material or, you know, whatever, I'm all for it. I think that's a great thing. But if you as like you said, if you're just going to leave it there and say, hey, go out and read this, uh, this uh, manga comic on economics, and now you know everything about economics. Manga economics. I got a problem with that. It, do you well, see that too, Doctor Coogan? When you're when you're talking with educators, do you do you find that with that they're just relying on that material that they're given and that's it? Well, not the educators that I see talking about it. You know, which is primarily through the um, through the Comics Arts Conference. And and I think really what you're talking about, Stephen, is just sort of bad teaching. Yeah. Which I don't like. It, that's why my reaction. I don't think that has anything to do with comics. They're going to find if somebody's teaching that way they're going to find other things to use or they're already using other things and the use of comics doesn't matter. It, it, in fact, it reminds me a lot of the uh, news stations that would use those video news releases oh, yeah. from the government yeah. and run them as news. That's just bad news. And it doesn't matter that if you're using video or comics or whatever, it's just bad news making. And so the same thing with, with teaching. If, if they're using materials that are supplied by uh you know i mean do you want would you like a comic book from nike that talked about uh athletics no you know you you wouldn't want it coming from nike because it's going to have a certain point of view right. um do we want you know the dairy industry right mm -hmm. puts out a lot of material that says Drinking milk and and eating cheese is good for you, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, the 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 food industry changed the pyramid, so that the food pyramid doesn't make any sense now. Uh, it, before it was you know the sweets on top and you know grains on the bottom. Yep. Uh, now it's it, now it made it's all like sense vertical. Understand it. So anytime you get commercial enterprises in you know involved in the creation of teaching materials. They're going to be propagandistic. They're going to be biased. And a teacher using them, you know, I wouldn't want the even like, let's say you had a class on gun safety. I wouldn't want NRA materials to be in there, even if they were accurate, because right. they come from an interested source. Mm -hmm. um, so that's 
that's really a, a, a much broader issue. And I, like I said, I don't think it particularly has to do with comics. And I don't think that they're used in that way. Anyway, but, I mean, a class, I can't see a class that really talks about um, downloads and, and, and copyright and so forth that's taught in, in a high school. Well, not in a high school, but certainly at the grade school level. I know that there are fourth and fifth grades that the uh, the record industry and the movie industry are pushing these comic books saying, use this in your classroom to teach your kids, use these comic books in the classroom to teach hmm. your kids why downloading is bad. And they use those things. So, you know, if we're talking about bad teaching and we're talking about propaganda and we're talking about comics in the classroom as an educational source, I think that's a kind of a valid valid argument to bring okay. that up. But granted, in the high school level and the college level, I'm hoping that people are, or that the educators are a little bit more keen onto what's going on. I think it's a, I, I, it's a coming of age for a medium to be used as propaganda. So I, for one, I'm kind of glad that <laughs> comics have finally made it to the point where they can be used as propaganda. Yeah. Oh, comics have been propaganda oh, for sure, decades. Sure, sure. But, I, I think, mean, we're talking about stuff that's been around for hundreds of years as opposed to comics, which has been around for decades as a I medium. Steve and I, years ago, went through a class where Nancy Selby told us about the five W's. And I think what we're having is is a fundamental disconnect between why to use comics and right. Stephen's questions, which are bordering more towards how to use comics. Right. But in in any case, when it comes to the comic itself, we 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 touched on uh, cultural literacy and and whether cultural literacy is actually really an existing force anymore. Let's let's look at this. Let's say Agent X. We're going to call him even Bliker. Let's say that, you know, in high school, he's never exposed to Hamlet. He's never exposed to Last of the Mohicans. He's never exposed to Ivanhoe. And he grows up to be an adult and he gets a job, you know, as an ineffectual middle management suck up or a corporate shill somewhere or, you know, washing cars, whatever it is that floats his boat. Does his relative cultural illiteracy really mean anything? And is there a difference between, you, you know, person X who hasn't read Ivanhoe, who hasn't read, you know, The Three Musketeers, or somebody like me who read most of these stories in that comic form? And honestly, I've read more of the, the, the you know, the classic tales in various comic book forms than I have in their actual, you know, written down paper form, because this is my thing. I'm a collector. I am a comic book historian. So, you know, I when, whenever Dion goes and buys Classics Illustrated, I'll go through them and look at them just to go, hey, I read that. I can't tell you what the House of Seven Gables is about, but I can tell you it's about 10 bucks in a very good condition, and we have it at Gatekeeper <laughs> Hobby, Suntoon, and Gage Topeka. Does, I mean, does the fact that I only know the House of Seven Gables from that, that comic book the fact that I can tell you because it says on the comic book Nathaniel Hawthorne, that's who wrote it. I mean, does that does that make a difference in the long term? I mean, is is, is my education somehow you know mis mis misshapen or misserved because that's that's way that's the way I learned that that that's the only way I've ever interacted with that material. Not, that's a good question. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say uh, to to a certain degree. Yes, it is, in that you you didn't interact with the actual text. But the same thing goes for the Bible. I mean, people every every time there was a new regime, they were like, "Well, don't translate it into X language because 
you're going to lose it. And besides, what do the peasants want? You know, un- actually understanding the Bible. People died over translating the Bible. Yeah. Um, right. So the do is is it exactly the same as reading the original text in Aramaic or Greek or whatever? No. But is it still the Bible? Yes, probably. All right. So, and that does bring up the question: Have you ever read picture stories of the Bible from EC Comics? Yes, that's another one that's that's you know teaching. And I guess if you're teaching in the uh, in the Bible class, then mm-hmm. you probably would want to use that. Would you? I don't know, because I remember specifically stories in the Bible that I read having a different tone mm. than the depends. way they were presented in picture stories of the Bible because picture stories of the Bible considered a quote-unquote entertainment publication maybe couldn't go there. Yeah. Dr. Coogan, you, you did a whole – I, I kind of want to get back here. Dr. Coogan, you did a whole uh, paper or something on Classics Illustrated. What was that, it, what was that paper about? Well, it was basically about where the canon came from. Okay. Uh, so I looked at. Uh, it's been a long time since I, I have uh, thought about that paper. In fact, um, yeah, I looked at canon formation in the late nineteenth and early early twentieth century, and and about how Gilberton went about picking his books, and about really the way that the um, the sort of ideological. Uh, complex that went into creation of the canon, he was really sort of culturally conservative and wanted to respect that canon and wanted to do the same things with um, Classics Illustrated that uh, that at Harvard and stuff they were trying to do with the creation of the canon. Um, that, that was basically what I found, that he was really just trying to duplicate the canon, trying to make it accessible for people and trying to make it uh, – uh, trying to make – take great literature to the people. Essentially, he acted as a popularizer. That's how he felt. Mm-hmm. So I guess a final question as we kind of wrap up the show is should we have more comics in the classroom or, or not? Rodrigo? Oh, definitely. I think they're, they're a tool to be used and teachers should not they're let their – uh, I, and I am a tool, but I am not to be exploited. Um, I think I think teachers, if they have a lot of people, come with a personal bias towards comic books, right? And that is restraining them. Yeah. I, I think comic books, whatever your intentions, whether they be altruistic or horrible, you, sir, can use comics to further your agenda. Okay, Matthew. I think that the question that you raised, while you know broad based and quite frankly unanswerable does bring up a point that I think we've we've kind of danced around, especially in a teaching environment or even in, you know, a silly environment like I have as an ineffectual middle management suck-up. You're never going to remove bias, your own or the bias of the person receiving your message. So there's no reason not to use comics, especially since, you know, we have seen and I'm sure Dr. Coogan can quote people who have clinically and scientifically proven that a comic is accessible in ways that um, an all-text story is not. The juxtaposition of the images gives you, even if you're a bad reader, even if you don't understand the language, it gives you a reference point for things that are going on. So I say absolutely yes, you should use your comics, but you know how you use them is the point where Stephen starts ranting for about a half an hour. That wasn't a half hour, but I do feel that how you use the comics are, are more important than than the comic itself. And I would I would like to see more comics in the classroom if it helps people understand and if it helps people ask questions. Uh, that's what I think they, they should be for. Therefore, Dr. Coogan, we're going to give you the final word. 
Um, I would say they should be used. There should be more of them if they're doing whatever it is, the education, if they're appropriate for the educational purposes. You know, if, if comics can teach math better than not using comics can teach math, there should be math comics. If, uh, you know, if movies could teach math, then there should be comic, you know, math movies. So I, I think it's really a point of, of what is the most appropriate way of teaching. I will say, though, that I agree with Will Eisner. You know, there's a lot of stuff that can be taught through comics in ways that are maybe better, more accessible. Um, and so with that, I would say more comics because they're probably going to be more accessible, more digestible, more memorable uh, than some other techniques. I know that lecturing is not an effective means of, of teaching. Right? Yeah. Many of us yeah. do it. <laughs> we do it, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not. It's, it's just, uh, it's not a great way to teach. And so is c- teaching through comic going to be better than teaching through lecture? Probably. And so, therefore, I would guess I would say more comics. All right. Dr. Coogan, the director of the Institute for Comic Studies, thank you so much for being a guest once again on our show. And uh, people are going to catch you next. Where's your next big appearance besides at the... Uh, at the tool business talking about Batman and all those other great gadgets and things. Uh, it's going to be at the uh, San Diego Comic Con during the Comic Arts Conference. Uh, we're also running programming at uh, Wizard Worlds in Philly and in Chicago. Not that I'll be there, but and also we're running programming at Dragon Con. Excellent. Not that I'll be there either, but we're going to have other people. <laughs> I'm going to have uh, people on site uh, running those things. So look for academic programming at your local Comic Con hopefully brought to you by the uh, Institute for Comic Studies. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show each and every time because we always get off into different topics and and different corners of the comic universe that I think a lot of people don't think about. And based on our listener feedback, you are one of our most popular guests, which is why we keep asking you to come back again and again. Well, I'm happy to do it. And uh, building my Google profile, that's how I got the tool gig. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Excellent. All right, everybody. That wraps it up for another week of the Major Spoilers podcast. Next time, we're going to be talking about animation, some of our favorite animated movies. Uh, We're going to be talking about the latest Up movie from Pixar and Disney Studios and a whole lot more because we know that you love pop culture, comics, movies, and all everything else. Propaganda. And we do too. Chick track. (laughs) We will talk with you next time. I don't want to be Elf Star anymore. (laughs) If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at majorspoilers.com. Visit Majorspoilers at majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at twitter.com slash majorspoilers and on MySpace at myspace.com slash majorspoilers. Bad the X-ray vision of a Superman I could save a few bucks and stand around And read through the covers of the comics on the stand But although every other page Would be backwards I suppose I could still read the evens and the odds Well I don't know Guess I haven't thought this all the way through Plus as soon as the comic book store guy knew They kicked my butt out on the corner What a major spoiler What a major spoiler 
way to think about a better way If I was hulking green or gray I could just bust through that brick wall Take their comic books away But then the little meat would deal With all the tanks and bombs and guns Have you ever tried to read a series With all that going on Guess I need to rethink this plan How would I back and board my comics With such huge hands Guess I already told ya What a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah what a major spoiler What a major spoiler If I'm Stark Raven rich like a man of iron I might not be surprised to find That I might actually have the heart cold To follow an entire storyline But would I really even need To read upon all those escapades I mean, who needs such distractions When your sister's such a babe But the downside is such a beast Being shot up in a fun Be in the Middle East With a King Santo and soldier what a major spoiler What a major spoiler Yeah, yeah, yeah What a major spoiler Whoa, 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 whoa What a major spoiler Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2009